This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choosing, go to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Hey, and I'm Matt Davis. Hey, Matt, good to see you. Hey, good to see you, man. Uh, These intros have been working out great, so we're going to give you another one. Well, I don't know. You keep showing up when I'm trying to record these, so I, I really can't stop you. I'm lonely. I know that. I know that. It's okay. Uh, we'll find you some friends. Anyways, uh, actually, I saw you just sitting here, and I was like, hey, didn't you just talk to somebody? Aren't we doing an interview podcast type thing? Uh, yeah, you're, you're catching on. This week's episode, I spoke to a professor. His name is Dr. David Linden, and he's a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Dude, I'm intrigued already. What sort of topics does Dr. Linden study? Well, Dr. Linden studies a variety of different topics. The type of research that goes back the furthest in his lab and his experience would be the topic of learning and memory. And he's interested in trying to sort of figure out where a memory exists at a molecular and cellular level. And he's been doing this by looking at a part of the brain called the cerebellum. I've heard of the cerebellum. It's that kind of basketball-shaped looking thing on the bottom of your brain, near the brainstem, right? That's correct. And your cerebellum helps coordinate movements, and it kind of allows you to learn complex kinds of coordinated behaviors. And it's a great mechanism for studying how learning and memory takes place. Yeah, that sounds really important. Um, you said he studies a couple things. What else does he study? Besides that, the second sort of focus of research that his lab has gone in is looking at how axons after damage repair themselves. Great. Uh, I had no idea that, at least in the adult mammalian brain, that axons could repair themselves. You're right in a believing that if there is, like, say, spinal cord injury, there's not very much hope for those axons or those tracks to really rebuild themselves. At least at this time. Yeah, at least at this time. Yeah, people are working on that for sure. But at this time, damage to it is there, you don't have very good luck in getting those to recover. But Dr. Linden has found some kind of amazing neurons in your brain that after damage actually seem to kind of sprout all the way back and sort of regrow themselves. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's this, he uses a really cool new technique too called in vivo two photon microscopy. This technique, it allows you to, in a live animal, watch as neurons are changing in real time. So you can watch a neuron get damaged and then watch it rebuild and you can take pictures of it or even take videos and watch it kind of uh, regrow. Uh, kind of like those awesome time-lapse photography videos you see in like those BBC documentaries. I'm imagining like the sprouting branches growing across time. Exactly, yeah. 
And besides some of the research that he's done, he's actually written a couple books. Um, uh, wait, what do you have in your hand right there, Matt? A book. Oh yeah. Uh, which, yeah. which book is it? I don't know. I didn't look at the title. You just, you just grab books randomly. Yeah. I mean, I just look at the colors and the picture and oh. I'm like, this looks like it's about brains. Do you know who the author of that book is? Uh, let me see. Looking for the title, looking for the author. David Linden. Yep. That cannot be coincidental. How did this book get in my possession? I think I must have dropped it off at your house at some point. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, uh, David Linden is an author of not only that book, but two other ones. Uh, he's written three popular science books, and they cover a variety of topics. The one you got in your lap right there is his most recent book. It's called Touch, and it's about the neuroscience of what touch is, how being touched is important. The book is touching me right now, literally. If in physically or mentally? Both. Both. <laughs> well, the book has been fascinating so far, and now that I know that you interviewed this person, I'm extra intrigued to hear about him. It was a fantastic interview. He told me about, you know, sneaking into undergraduate classes when he wasn't supposed to and wanting to be Jacques Cousteau and getting a tan on a boat speaking French and about how that helped him become a neuroscientist. That's amazing. It was a great interview. You should definitely listen. And the listeners should listen as well. So you know the drill. Perk up them cochlea. Okay, I will. All right. Let's do it. What is that experience like, I guess, just in, in general, being the uh, head editor of a, of a journal? Does it become, uh, uh, are you then seeing everything that comes through and you're making major decisions in that case? Well, the way it works, different journals have different organization. But a journal of neurophysiology, there are 12 associate editors. So my job, every paper comes to me first, and I will reject editorially only about maybe 5% of them, okay. like ones that are just completely, there's no chance in hell. Yeah. Like, it's just a waste of time to review it because, like, this paper got no chance. Yeah. Then the other ones, I will decide who to send it to. So I'm basically like the traffic cop who says, you over there, you over there, yeah. you over there. And then I take a few of them for myself if they're in my area of interest. And then basically... uh at that point, the associate editors have full control. They run the show. They make all the decisions. Unless they, if they have a, a question or if there's an ethical issue, then they pull me back in. So sometimes if they have a split decision, you know, or they're really not quite sure, you know, they'll say, here, come in, come in with me on this. So the dicey decisions. And let's talk yeah. about it. Or if there is any suggestion of any ethical problem or animal use problem or human subjects problem, anything like that, then I would also have to come in okay. and uh, and adjudicate that okay. as well. But that's that's basically how it works. But, you know, the thing is, when you're an editor of a journal, peop when their people's paper gets into the journal, 
their feeling is that it got in on its merits. And when it didn't get in, their feeling is that you screwed them. <laughs> so um, that's a common psychological uh, fallacy that we like to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, you know, there are, I made a few enemies. <laughs> you know, this is why it's better to, to do this job later in one's career rather than earlier. <laughs> don't you know? want to make too many enemies, right? Well, off. yeah, you don't want to make enemies as, like, say, a new assistant professor. Yeah. You know, whereas I can afford to make a few enemies. And, yeah. How does that change your experience at uh, larger uh, gatherings of than your colleagues? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had people, like, just run up to me and start reaming me out. And the <laughs> other thing is, like, people just don't know who their friends are and who their enemies are either. So, like, inevitably, like, what happens is someone will come up to me and they'll say, you picked bad reviewers for my paper. If you had just gotten Dr. X, who's the expert, you know, then they would have said how great it was. And, of course, we did get Dr. X, and Dr. X ripped their paper, and, you know. <laughs> and how do you let them down, <laughs> And then the other thing is, like, yeah, I mean, a lot of times people assume that the people who are directly competing with them will be unfair. But actually, usually, there are a few people like that, but most people are actually good. In other words, most people, if they get a paper and it is competing with something in their own lab, they will bend over backwards to be fair because they don't want to feel like they have, you know, squashed their competitor. That's good. I, I, I'm glad that you know. You can, I can, yeah. you can say with experience that that's Yeah, true. I mean, it's not universal, but actually I would say it's... Maybe surprisingly. It's, it's, it's much more common than you would imagine. That's good. You know, what it means is that, like, you know, you want to think twice because your, your closest competitor, at least at a minimum, they agree with you that this is an interesting topic. Right? Yeah, something in common. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, the final thing I guess I'd like to ask about that experience too is, um, what did you, what, as the, as a chief editor then, did you have any, um, ideas about how you wanted that as a journal, as a, as a place where papers are going to go? Like, to, did you lead it any, in any direction differently? Well, Journal of Neurophysiology is a very special journal, right? It's an old fashioned journal in the sense that we don't allow supplementary figures and there is no limit arbitrary limit on number of figures or length. So it's the kind of place where if you have a big, long story to tell and it's a good story, you can tell it there. Um, the other thing is that it's not a journal that, uh, you know, that cares a lot about how much a paper is going to be cited. In other words, if you work on a really obscure topic, but we think it's cool, like bat echolocation, yeah, you know, we love that shit. You know, we would love to publish lots of papers on topics that get very few citations, just not because they're not good, but just because there are very few labs that work on something. And like, even if everybody in the world who works on this cites your paper, it's still only going to be a handful of citations. And we understand that. So, so that's not the currency you're looking at. No, Journal of Neurophysiology you know, is, 
I didn't really want to change it that much because I really liked it the way it was and people are attached. The main thing I wanted to do was to keep Journal of Neurophysiology from becoming your grandpa's journal. <laughs> you know, in other words, I don't want it to just be like the place where old fusty old guys like me publish and, you know, the young cool people like you go, oh, I would rather be an e-neuro, you know. I mean, e-neuro is great, but, but, you know, it's, so I developed a, a section called Neuroforum, which was summaries of, uh, you know, like, like t- small reviews of articles about neurophysiology in, in any journal, uh, written by students and postdocs okay. as a way of trying to bring younger scientists into, into the J Neurophys fold. And, uh, you know, that, I think it's been at least partially successful. Um, would you be able also, so we have this too on record, just can we, can you please introduce yourself and tell us where you work? And then also kind of like in your, in your current lab right now, what are the sort of large scope questions that you're trying to ask right now? That's right. Well, so I'm David Linden and I work, uh, in the Department of Neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And traditionally in my lab has worked on uh, memory storage in the cerebellum, mostly investigated with cellular electrophysiological techniques and imaging. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. And that now accounts for about one third of what the lab does. And the other questions that we're interested in involve using mostly in vivo to photon microscopy to try to understand how uh, axons can regenerate in the adult mammalian brain and to understand the beneficial effects of exercise on cognitive function through understanding their uh, effects on brain and vascular microstructure. And we're also very interested in uh, hormonal modulation of uh, neuronal structure. We're interested, for example, in how uh, the ovarian cycle modulates synapses. Okay, wow. So yeah, we got a whole different kinds of uh, areas that you're working on now. Um, how about we take a step back and we'll get, I would like to hit kind of each of those little chunks, at least a little bit sure. uh, to, to talk about it. But before we even do that, can we set the stage too on the history of yourself and how you got to where you are? So could, where, could you tell us where you grew up and kind of how you kind of maybe became attracted to science? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I grew up in the lovely seaside town of Santa Monica, California. And, uh, I grew up uh, in the 1960s and 70s and Jacques Cousteau, the marine biologist, was on television a lot. So I thought I wanted to be a marine ecologist. I wanted to, like, you know, sit in the sunshine in my swimsuit in the tropics speaking French. That's very interesting. Scuba diving. It seemed really, really, really good. Um, but I also had, uh, an interest in, uh, in, in, in the biological basis of mental function. And this really came to a large degree from, uh, uh, from my father. My father is a psychoanalyst. And, uh, you know, we would have dinner conversations where he would say things like, Oh, let me tell you about the dream that my, 
you know, bipolar crossdresser had. Uh, uh, That's fun. And so yeah, you know, this was this this was, and so you know, and, and I would say, Dad, this is really cool. But like, do you ever wonder about like what's going on in the brain that's underlying, you know, this kind of stuff? And uh, he would say, Yeah, I do. But you know, I took this other route, and uh, and so and so I had, uh, and my mother was a textbook editor. She edited college textbooks. So she had like a very broad intellect. She like, you know, knew a little bit about a lot of things. Yeah. And, and you know, that also appealed to me. Yeah. So she was a, she, to be a textbook editor, she had to sort of be like, yeah, I'm, I've, I believe these things are true and be able to, but know it in all the potential fields that or, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, when you're an editor, you, you sort of have to be, you know, sort of an intellectual jack of all trades. Uh, and it's a very particular kind of person who can do that job well. Yeah. Um, and so I had, uh, I went to college at Berkeley and, uh, I arrived there and I said, Oh, I'm interested in perhaps being a neurobiology major. And they said, Oh, that's very good. Here's what you do in the first two years. You take chemistry and calculus and physics and, then after you declare the neurobiology major, you can take some neurobiology courses. And I said, wait a second. No, this is bullshit. Like, you're trying to tell me that I have to, like, declare the major and then you'll show me what it's about? No way. And the thing is, this was early enough that, like, the whole thing wasn't computerized. So what it meant is that you could lie. <laughs> so as a first quarter freshman, I went down and I signed up for, you know, senior level neurophysiology. And they said, are you a senior? Have you had these prerequisites? And I just lied. And I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, because I didn't want to wait until I was, you know, already Smart. signed on the line. And so I started working in labs. I worked in a circadian rhythms uh, uh, lab. I worked in a, in a pain and opioids lab. And I really liked it. Did but you just I approach them, like just ask to be in the lab and... Yeah, I just, I just, I just walked up and, and, and said, yeah, how about it? Yeah, cool. And, uh, and, uh, and, but then at the end of sophomore year, it became time to declare a major. And I still thought, well, maybe I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. And I couldn't decide what to do. So I dropped out of college and I went, uh, to work as a research diver. And, uh, and, uh, so where the San Onofre nuclear power station is in California, there's a pipe that shoots out the hot water. And at the end of the pipe, there would be me with, you know, a bunch of other people and track tech lines and, you know, surveying the marine environment there. And I realized that this is fun. Well, it wasn't so fun in the winter, actually. Oh, yeah. In the summer, it was fun. In the winter, it was kind of physically unpleasant. Uh, but... More importantly, I realized that I'm too much of a control freak to be an ecologist. You have to, an ecologist, you're just letting, you're just observing. Well, there's and, so many degrees of freedom. Like, you're just, like, you're not doing experiments. You're just, like, measuring you know, it. You're measuring it, and you don't really know what's going on. And, like, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there are people who can do this, and I'm very glad. But for me, I could just tell that it would bug me. Yeah. That 
that it wouldn't be constrained enough, that it would bug me to do science in the style, that I want to manipulate stuff. I think almost all scientists have somewhat uh, that's <laughs> that little part of your personality, the like that allows or that uh, satisfaction of being like, I'm in control of these things that I'm manipulating. Well, right. And, but it's an interesting thing also, even in experimental science, to be observationally gentle, right? I mean, sometimes what you can learn the most out is just watching something. And sometimes you have to like, you know, like rip the carapace off an insect and then like watch and see what its neurons are doing, you know, while they're growing. And, 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 you know, sometimes these observational things are, are, are the most useful, even when you're not really intervening. But experimental science really seemed like, like the thing. And so when I came back from that hiatus, I declared a neurobiology major, and I've been a neurobiologist ever since. Cool. Could you tell me about kind of uh, the first kinds of experiment when you were actually uh, in maybe a graduate student or a postdoc, some of the types of discoveries that you were making and what was kind of propelling you to the eventual kind of interests that you have now? Yeah. Well, so I was a graduate student in the 1980s when uh, hippocampal LTP you know, first became a, a big thing to study, and lots of labs were getting into it. It was kind of a little niche business by the time I started my PhD in 1984. And by 1989, it was like, I don't know, 10% of the gross national product or something. Everybody was involved in this. And, you know, I like the hippocampus as a brain region, but the truth is that you can manipulate synapses in the hippocampus and you can measure hippocampal dependent behaviors. But then actually saying, you know, making this synapse in the hippocampus weaker or stronger constitutes this memory that we can measure in this way. Well, that's not really possible at present in the hippocampus. And the reason is that like we really don't entirely understand the kind of information that's being conveyed to to the hippocampus. Like, what kind of information is conveyed via the preferent path? Well, it's all kinds of complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I worked on hippocampus and on plasticity uh, in my graduate work at Northwestern in R.A. Rutenberg's lab. It was a lot of fun. But as I finished, I thought, you know, I want to study memory, but I want to do it in a system that where it's possible to make circuit level hypotheses where you can say, all right, you know, this behavioral stimulus goes here and goes here and it winds up here. And so we think the memory should be in one of these few locations or perhaps several of them. Okay. And then where did um, that lead you to? Together. And so, you know, that's what led me to the cerebellum. Okay. And so I did my postdoctoral fellowship with John Connor at a place that doesn't exist anymore called the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology. What happened to it? Which was a wonderful place. The Hoffman LaRoche Drug Company got tired of paying for oh, okay. it. They, it was kind of like Bell Labs for biology. They, they, they just funded this peer research institute for years and years and years for like 27 years. And they said, you know, we could use this money for other things. Uh, but while it was there, it was a great, it was a great place. There was, you know, essentially unlimited funding to do all kinds of wonderful things. And my postdoc mentor, John Connor, really kind of came out of an engineering tradition. And so he loved 
tinkering with devices, and he was one of the pioneers of uh, of of calcium imaging in neurons, and that seemed very exciting and useful uh, technique uh, back then in 1990. Yeah, it still is. Uh, then it was a very esoteric thing that only a few labs in the world did, and so I went there to learn it, and also, you know. John had the ability because he had didn't have to write grants, and because he was sort of an engineer at heart, uh, you could kind of go with him with any good idea and talk him into any experiment. Oh, pretty really? Much. So I went in and I said, you know, I think I want to study cerebellar long-term synaptic depression, but I want to try to develop it in a cell culture model. And he said, all right, I'll give you six months. And so five and three-quarter months in, it's still not working. And at the very last possible moment, it started to work. And it turned out to be a very useful model system. We use it in my lab now to this day. Can, can you talk maybe a little bit about that preparation? Well, you... right. You know, the anatomy of the cerebellum is, is, is not conducive to, to growing organotypic cultures where you take a brain slice and then grow the slice and culture because this the directionality of the axons means you can't cut a slice without cutting off a lot of what you care about um, but you can take embryonic uh, cerebellum and disperse the neurons and grow them up in culture and then they are they recapitulate not all but most of the properties of uh, of real Purkinje cells and granule cells and glial cells and interneurons and uh, and then it's very straightforward to patch clamp them and to do calcium imaging or or structural imaging or mitochondrial imaging. So you just um, got a little now you have a culture dish and those cells have from em, they're embryonic when you begin and then they just develop basically somewhat of the same kind of circuitry that you would see normally. Well, somewhat, right? Yeah. I mean, we did a very stripped down preparation. So you we have done and and one can do. You can stimulate a granule cell in a dish that projects to a Purkinje cell, which recapitulates one of the synapses that's present in the real cerebellum. But in many of our experiments, what we did is we just replaced the granule cell with an anaphoretic pipette that would release tiny puffs of glutamate onto the Purkinje cell. Okay. And the nice thing about that is that it allows us, it allowed us to uniquely attribute plastic phenomena to the postsynaptic side. Mm-hmm. So there was no question about what was pre- and what was post? And was there, that it? Was that a there debate was at the no time? pre? Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a big hairy debate at the time, particularly in the hippocampus. Yeah, and we pretty much sidestepped that that debate entirely. I even did some really crazy experiments where I would pull a macro patch, an outside out macro patch, off the dendrite of a Purkinje cell, and then study LTD in that macro patch uh, to absolutely convince myself that I had a purely postsynaptic preparation. So yeah, things could got a little silly uh, in that time. I know that in uh, your work, you've, you've um, contributed a lot to uh, the LTD or this long-term depression that's found in the cerebellum. Would you mind maybe setting the stage about uh, what the research was happening at the time and then how your, what your contributions were to that story? Well, sure. So long-term synaptic depression in the cerebellum was discovered uh, in Masao Ito's laboratory uh, in the 1980s. 
uh, and it was originally done in vivo, and it was kind of inferred from recordings of spiking. And then later it was done very laboriously in some brain slice experiments with microelectrodes because slice patch hadn't been invented yet. It was that long ago. And so uh, very little was known about the receptors and enzymes and trafficking events that were underlying this form of depression. And this form of depression was thought to form a part of the memory trace for phenomena like associative eyelid conditioning and adaptation of the vestibulo-ocular reflex. And so I thought, well, you know, if we can do this in culture, then we can, we can, we can have all kinds of fun. We can measure calcium. We can deliver drugs very easily. We can transfect these neurons with plasmids using a gene gun. Uh, later on, we could transfect the neurons with bacterial artificial chromosomes, a technique that we invented. And uh, it just seemed like it was a very good preparation for kind of pulling apart the nitty-gritty molecular details of how these synapses uh, were made weaker in a associative uh, use-dependent fashion. Okay, awesome. It seems like the development of all these new technologies too, then you have this preparation and then you can just apply all these really cool other developed technologies to answer those questions. Yeah, Right. And, and you know, some of these things, like they sound easy, but they turn out to be really hard. Mm-hmm. Even making good cultures is a little bit hard. But you know, there's some things that no one else has ever been able to do. So, for example, there are, you probably know, there are late protein synthesis-dependent phases of synaptic plasticity in all kinds of, uh, of, of different preparations. But, uh, in, 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 uh, mammalian brain, people study these with field potentials. So they're recording the summed activities of many different neurons. Uh, we have figured out how to make ultra-long perforated patch recordings from cultured Purkinje cells. We're the only ones who can study the protein synthesis-dependent late phase in a single neuron. Mm-hmm. And that then we can do input specificity of the late phase in a single neuron, and we can do calcium imaging with the late phase in a single neuron, and uh we can study uh, receptor trafficking that underlies it, and uh, and so uh, and so yeah, it's been a lot of fun to add these different techniques as they have come online to this basic uh, uh, preparation. It sounds like you're starting to put the little pieces of the circuit together it, uh, since when you started this adventure. Now that probably uh, circuit, or at least the parts of it, are is getting larger and larger. We're getting to know. Well, there are. And, you know, my lab actually worked on other aspects of the circuit. We worked on cerebellar deep nuclear neurons and interneurons and granule cells and yeah. and a number of different forms of, of, of uh, plasticity, both synaptic and intrinsic, in those areas, including some that we discovered. You know, there's a whole community of cerebellar learning and cerebellar physiology researchers. So I don't want to leave the impression like, well, you know, this is just all something we're doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by ourselves. But, you know, I think we have collaborated a lot, particularly with people doing mouse genetics and people doing sophisticated, uh, 
behavior analysis, people who can do vestibulocular reflex uh, in, in mice or associative eyelid conditioning in mice, which is a bit tricky. And, uh, you know, in that fashion, we've, we've been able to figure some things out. Good. Yeah. Just adding to the pot of the. Well, you know, my own, my feeling is that ultimately all this molecular detail is in service of understanding what we really care about, which is real learning in a critter. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, our strategy has been like to dig deep into these molecular mechanisms in large part to try to produce manipulations that are very, very specific. So, for example, um, a lot of people will say, inhibit the enzyme CAMK2 in a neuron. CAMK2 is necessary for LTP in the, hippocamp in the hippocampus. And then they do behavioral analysis. Maybe they do sophisticated genetic things, so they're doing it just in CA1 cells and only in adult animals in an inducible system, and that's all very well. But, you know, CAMK2 phosphorylates hundreds and hundreds of substrates in a CA1 pyramidal cell, not just those that are related to LTP. So if you manipulate that, how are you ultimately going to convince yourself that your behavioral phenotype is from LTP as opposed to any one of the other things that CAMK2 does. And so, you know, we have been seeking the most specific molecular manipulations we can do in the hope of perturbing a certain form of plasticity and as little else as possible to try to make the best case for, to test the hypothesis that a particular form of plasticity is involved in a particular form of learning. Could we talk maybe about how you got into the field too of um, axonal regeneration? And uh, can we talk a little bit about what uh, types of research you're doing in that field now? Sure. A number of years ago, we were sitting around a lab meeting and we were talking about the bullshit paragraphs that you write in your grants that say, oh, and this is clinically relevant because of blah, 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 and studying cerebellar LTD will lead to understandings of diseases of memory. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but I'm not, probably not, actually. Not in my life. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, I mean, you never know where basic research will go. But I thought, you know, I want to have some fraction of work in the lab that is genuinely translational, or at least attempts to be genuinely translational, if it, whether or not it succeeds. And so at that point, we had gotten pretty good at in vivo two photon imaging. We tried to figure out like, well, so what are, what are some clinically relevant issues that could benefit from, from in vivo two photon microscopy and axon regeneration in the intact uh, adult brain seemed like one of those. And we were, we knew about this because of the work of uh, the anatomist at Hopkins named Mark Molliver. And, uh, other things had to do with uh, the beneficial effects of exercise. Uh, and, uh, and then some other things have just been curiosity driven. So, for example, we're, we're very interested in, uh, how the, how memory is maintained in reproductive age females even when 
Dendritic spine density fluctuates by 30% over every ovarian cycle. So why is it that that process just doesn't knock enormous holes in memory constantly of females? And we know it doesn't because females remember just fine. Um, and so uh, this is a question that we're now addressing with in vivo to photon microscopy that had previously only been uh, investigated using fixed tissue techniques. And, and so hopefully this will allow us to know things like, well, are there a protected set of synapses that don't vary, and then another set of synapses that come and go and come and go yeah. with, uh, with every cycle? I did not know that. That's a crazy... Uh... Yeah, well, so it's a fairly well-established. It was really discovered initially by Catherine Woolley when she was a postdoc with Bruce McEwen. She's followed it up in her own lab, and then many other labs have found have found the same phenomenon. And yeah, it's been found in rats and mice and monkeys, and it's mostly studied in the hippocampus, but it's also true in spiny neurons of the neocortex as well, like pyramidal cells. And, you know, when you think about phenomena like say, the connectome, well, you know, what's a connectome? The connectome in estrus is not the same as the connectome in diestrus. And so, you know, these are things we've got to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to change one week to the next week, apparently. <laughs> or if you're a mouse, it'll change every few days because the ovarian cycle is only five days long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you add a little bit about uh, some of the uh, work or some of the, I guess, findings that you have come about by looking at exonal growth using this fo two photon microscopy, being able to see the neurons kind of like growing? Well, we've, uh, we've discovered a number of things. We find that when you damage, uh, serotonin axons in the neocortex with whopping doses of amphetamine, the axons die back to the base of the brain, basically to the, caudal aspect of the medial forebrain bundle, and then they grow back very, very slowly uh, over over many weeks and gradually re-innervate. Uh, when they re-innervate, they don't re-innervate precisely. They don't grow back precisely to where they used to be or to where any axon used to be. They just grow back into the neighborhood, and they grow back and they attain normal morphology. They have normal survival. Uh, they grow in one by one in an unbundled fashion. And uh, as they grow back, they restore the ability to release serotonin in response to uh, electrical activity. So we believe that they go a long way towards uh, recapitulating function. And this is a very unusual and unexpected phenomenon in the central nervous system, where in most places where you damage axons, the axons grow back very, very weakly, if at all. And so this shows a rather unique exception to this rule, and then begs the question, well, what's special about serotonin? neurons that allows them to do this. Is this good good news for people that like to take uh, ecstasy and amphetamine that they have this ability to to, to regrow? To re <laughs> well, you know, may, it may be. I mean, in truth, moderate use of, of ecstasy in particular 
is not clear that it is actually going to cause any dieback of serotonin axons at all. You have to give yourself a pretty damn whopping dose of ecstasy to do that. Uh, your, your bigger danger with ecstasy is getting hyperthermic and, uh, you know, particularly people go to raves and they take ecstasy and they dance with a whole bunch of people in a warehouse and get really, really hot. <laughs> They'd be getting hot anyway. And then on top of the amphetamine effect, then they, they spike a dangerous core temperature. Yeah. I'm, I'm from the desert from Arizona and people would do it in outside and at least they would do it at night, but I always thought that was a, a dicey decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a problem. And, you know, when you read about people, dying at, you know, like at raves, usually that's the reason. So at least there's this ability to, oh yeah, let's talk about the final thing too that you say you, you do a little bit about researching, which is how exercise and, um, am I missing something else? I guess how exercise also can help with uh, regrowth of dendrites and axons and things. Well, it's not so much with regrowth. There's uh, a promotion, I guess, maybe. of Yeah, and this is, I mean, what we know is that exercise is, about as good an anti-anxiety drug as benzodiazepines, and it's about as good an antidepressant as SSRIs, and it has no bad side effects at all. As a matter of fact, it has good side effects. Like, for example, whereas SSRIs suppress libido, exercise enhances libido. So, you know, win-win. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's the single best thing you can do as you age to maintain cognitive function and so, well, why is that? And, you know, some people say, well, it has to do with the rate of newborn neurons in the hippocampus. Well, you know, it may have something to do with it. Um, in truth, you can do pretty well without a hippocampus, uh, in, in terms of a lot of, uh, a lot of aspects of mood. So, uh, We have been interested in the effects of, of exercise uh, on uh, dendritic spine turnover and then also to uh, some degree on the, uh, the ultrastructure of, uh, of blood vessels. What, what do these blood vessels, how do they, do we think that having more of them or having some sort of uh, ability to innervate that, that your brain tissue at a different rate would, be, would help with... Uh... I don't know, nutrient and oxygen transfer or something? Well, right. I mean, I would say probably more when you're old than when you're young. In other words, a young person like you, you've got plenty of headroom, you know. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're getting plenty of, of, of oxygen and nutrients to your brain. Someone like me, you know, I'm a little older. I've accumulated some plaque in my arteries and, uh, you know, I may not have as much of a safety factor. And by the time you get to be real old, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty limiting. So it's, it's very likely that, uh, manipulations, including exercise that can dilate blood vessels, for example, or perhaps alter subtly the connectivity of capillaries, uh, may be able to enhance cognitive function through, through that mechanism. I was interested in if there was anyone kind of in your whole scientific career uh, or just really in your life that really inspired you or has kind of like uh, been a, a, a mentor, kind of shaped uh, significantly who you are and uh, what you study, I guess. Or <laughs> Well, I got, some, I got some very good advice from Solomon Snyder when I first started as a, as a uh, faculty member 
at Hopkins, and he said, look, everyone's, all the neuroscientists are reading the neuroscience literature. And if you read the neuroscience literature, you're going to have mostly the same ideas that the other people have in that literature read. Here's what you should do. Go read the non-neuroscience literature, and you're going to get ideas, and then you're going to take those ideas, and you're going to bring them to neuroscience, and you'll have some new things to do that way. And that turned out to be extraordinarily good advice, and one that I've tried to exploit as much as possible. So I like reading, for example, the cancer literature. I like reading the development literature. Uh, and uh, these kinds of things can, 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 can bring all kinds of good, good insights to neurophysiological problems. There's a, there's a faculty member here that said the exact same advice, and he also stressed the cancer uh, literature, and he told us that the kinds of technologies kind of being in, advanced in that field is phenomenal, and that we could draw a lot from that if we paid more attention. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, sometimes even it's as simple as realizing that there's a signaling pathway that's been very well defined in some other part of the body. And like, you know, you get out the Allen Brain Atlas online, you go look, you go, oh my God, this thing's all over the brain. I wonder what it does. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, here's a great example, like cytokines, right? There's cytokine receptors all over the brain. What are they doing? Well, mostly we don't have one freaking idea what are they, what they're doing. Is that a great topic to start a lab with? Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure is. You know, it's 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 going to be interesting. It's probably going to be clinically relevant, uh, and uh, and you know, you have it to yourself for a while. That's yeah. not, that's almost good advice for young uh, people starting up to be like, well, there's all these. If you can find the little uh, part of the world that people haven't really been trudging in, maybe you you'll either get lost in the woods or you'll be you'll set up camp and uh, be the first one to make a lot of those discoveries. I guess. Well, right, and a lot of times, you know, you can take you can take a toolkit that you've learned and just apply it to something slightly different. You know, so for example, uh, I collaborate extensively with Rick Huguenier's lab. They're world leaders in, in, in receptor trafficking. And there are all kinds of great postdocs leaving his lab all the time, and they all ask me for advice. And I always say something like, you know, you could study receptor trafficking and get your ass kicked by all these really well-funded Hughes investigators and big shots in this field, you know, or you could take your same toolkit and then use it to study things like trafficking of voltage-gated ion channels where there's only a handful of labs involved and probably, you know, be able to make all kinds of good stuff and not be looking over your shoulder and not be getting scooped all the time. And, you know, so think about that. So, you know, there's, uh, there's all, there's no end of things to be done. It's, always depressing when you see situations where there's like 10 labs doing the same thing and then like a whole bunch of things that nobody is even thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to get to talk a little bit too about, because uh, you have written a couple of books. Um, uh, could you tell us about what what inspired you to want to write books uh, and uh, what some some of the topics that you've you decided to, I guess, uh, focus your, uh, your uh, writing on? Well, so, 
in uh, 2003, my wife, now my ex-wife, who's an ethnomusicologist, said, let's go on sabbatical together. I said, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And uh, she said, where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to Gabon because they've got elephants there that eat the hallucinogen iboga, and I want to do movement analysis on them because it activates the inferior olive, which is a projects to the cerebellum and is involved in motor control. And she said, yeah, I don't know. we got these small children and Gabon and, you know, lots of infectious disease. And I said, all right, I see your point. Where do you want to go? And she said, Cambridge, England. And I thought, well, that's a nice place, but what am I going to do there? Um, and, you know, a lot of PIs, when they go on sabbatical, they want to get out from behind their desk and do some experiments. But I do experiments all the time. Uh, I never stop doing experiments. And so for me, that's no big treat to do experiments. I, you want you to know, not do experiments. I, wanted, I needed a break, actually. And so, and so uh, I thought, well, you know, you go to cocktail parties. You, you know about this. If you're a neuroscientist, people say, oh, your brain research, that's so cool. People have a bunch of questions. And then back in 2003, people would say to me, oh, that's great. Is there a book you could recommend for a general audience that like, I could follow up with on this? And in 2003, quite honestly, I said, you know, really? Actually, no. I mean, I don't really. There's some books that are like too hard for a general audience and other ones that I think are silly or that don't really, that are boring. Or, and I thought, well, it's time to put up or shut up. And so I thought, I'll go to Cambridge, I'll write my own book. And so I did. And fortunately, the stakes were very low, right? It's like, I didn't know if I could write a book. I didn't know if anybody would want to read a book that I wrote or publish it or anything. But the nice thing is that I went there and if I tried to write a book and failed or if I wrote a book and nobody wanted it, it didn't really matter. I'd just go back to the lab. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't need it to feed my family. I didn't need it for my academic career or my grant or anything. You know, the stakes were low. And so I wrote this book called The Accidental Mind. It was kind of a guided tour book of the brain with sort of an evolutionary slant. And I was fortunate in that is publishers wanted to publish it. And when it was published, a lot of people bought it and want, wanted to read it. And it's been translated a lot, and it was, you know, it was so people liked it, and and that was encouraging. So I thought, well, all right, this is a thing I can do, and it's fun, and it's a very different challenge than working through the lab in the lab. You know, the lab's very social, and I love that. Writing is a very inward-turning, solitary activity, and you know, I'm glad I don't do only that. It's a very different kind of challenge, and and that's that's a fun thing, and so. The next book was about the reward circuitry and addiction and pleasure. And, you know, people love that topic. And at that point, it hadn't been done very much. And I thought, well, you know, here is a situation where there is very recent work in the field that is really exciting. There's a topic that people care about, and the story hasn't been told yet, so I can do it. Cool. And then most recently, I have a book on the sense of touch. And again, I felt touch is something that is inherently emotional. People care about it in many different contexts, from sexual behavior to pain to caressing to bonding with children. And there's tremendous progress that's been made in the last 20 years uh, on touch physiology, and, and nobody's told the story. So, so really, that's... That's how I pick a topic uh, for a book. Yeah, I was going to say, did you? Um, does that also kind of give you now an excuse to become an expert at that field? Since 
you know, like now I'm sure you are extremely well versed in all the touch physiology literature. But well, you know, it's a funny thing because my lab doesn't work on touch. My lab doesn't work on reward, right? But I wrote books on reward yeah. and touch, so it's kind of funny. I'm kind of like a half expert. You know, in the sense that, you know, I'm like the ambassador from the nation of neuroscience <laughs> saying, you know, I can explain this yeah. to you, even though, like, I'm not a super expert on my lab doesn't work. I can, I can direct you to an expert. No. <laughs> and, you know, and the truth is, it's actually easier to write about topics in which you're a half expert. Because... When you write about the things that are closest to your heart, the things you work on in your own lab, it's really hard not to put in too much detail. In other words, there's all kinds of details and little things that you love, and nobody cares about yeah. that stuff. You know, yeah, exactly. they, they want the broad outlines. And, you know, I would write in my first book, I wrote a chapter on learning and memory, which I love. And it was way too detailed. And it was, I had to go through many, many iterations to kind of get it to the level that was appropriate for a general audience. But I wrote another chapter on sleep and dreaming. Well, I hadn't read the sleep and dreaming literature in years, and I had to bone up on it. And I'm far from an expert on sleep and dreaming. I don't work on sleep and dreaming. But I pretty much read all the papers, and I formed my opinions. And then writing about it was pretty straightforward because I'm not that different than the reader. Yeah. Right? It's easier to make that empathetic leap. You know, it's not that hard to imagine, to remember what it was like to not know anything yeah. about sleeping and dreaming. You're just like, I just did a, I just sat down in a room and read a bunch of papers and then here's what I, well, yeah. Right. And, you know, so this is the thing I think for all, you know, scientists and, well, neuroscientists in particular is that, you know, you have a set of skills that allow you to evaluate evidence. You understand enough background to dig in. You can call people up when you don't understand something and, like, you know, find the real experts and ask them to, like, work through something with you. And that's something that, like, you know, people in the general audience can't do. So, you know, I think the the, the lesson is you can write about stuff that you are not a super expert in. You do not have to work on a topic in your lab in order to write a good book about it. What was the, um, when you were writing the first book too, do you have any stories about like, uh, I guess difficulties or successes? Did it come easy? Or was it a hard process, the first one? Or did you feel like, yeah, I don't, if anyone reads this, I don't even care. It kind of just came out. Well, you know, I think the, when I first sat down to write the first book, what came out sounded like a manuscript for Neuron. You know, it, I, it was hard to write for a general audience, you know, when you're used to writing grants and scientific papers. And it took a while to kind of shift into this other mode. Now, in particular, people, there's different strategies for writing about science. Most people write about science, and they use a very neutral voice. And they don't really inject themselves into it. I don't write that way. I write in the first person and I inject my personality into every little bit of the book. And some people don't like that, but some people do like that. And, you know, for me, it is a way to help engage people with difficult material. I'm going to tell you a funny story about something that happened to me and then I'm going to relate it to neurobiology for example. Uh, but it's not everyone's cup of tea, you know. Not not everyone wants their science that way. But the people who do want it, like it. And there are enough of them that will keep doing it. Yeah. Do you think you've become a better communicator of science to both 
non-scientist and to scientists by becoming a writer and kind of I think trying so. to talk like that? I think so. I think there are, you know, because let's face it, the, the, the essence of any type of communication is empathy. You have to put yourself in uh, the mental space of the person who doesn't already know what you know. And while that is a bigger challenge writing for non-specialists, it's a challenge even if I'm talking to neuroscientists because, you know, we all have the things we know tons about and the things we know less about. So I think that there are general strategies for communication that if you if you practice communicating with non-scientists will help your communication with uh, with specialists in your field as well. And finally, I'd like to ask, do you have, um, when uh, you're not doing science, or do you have any other kind of like passions or interests or hobbies that you like to spend your time doing? Well, um, I like riding my mountain bike. Uh, that's, cool. uh, that's a lot of fun. I live in an area of Baltimore that's adjacent to a big patch of forest. So, uh, so that's one of my favorite. You're not going through downtown Baltimore, but <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that gets your exercise that you so know so much about as being important. Yes. And it, it should be a more frequent occurrence than it is, but, yeah, okay. uh, 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 nonetheless. Yeah. Well, also, oh, so I'd, I'd like to ask a, oh, another final thing, actually. Uh, since we, I, uh, do you feel like there's a, um, uh, that scientists have a responsibility to be uh, communicators of the kinds of research that they do? Well, I really think so. I mean, not everyone is well-equipped to do this, but I think many people who would be terrific communicators to a general audience don't do it because it just doesn't, you know, people are busy. It doesn't rise to the top of their list. But, you know, let's face it, we are... We're asking a lot from society. We're asking them to fund our laboratories and, you know, pay for our, our, our curiosity. And then, you know, when we have discoveries that have implications for, for policy and laws and ideas, uh, we want people to listen to us. And I think, you know, most scientists don't, don't bother to engage in that in that way, I, I guess I wouldn't say that I call it an absolute obligation of every scientist, but I would be much happier if many more working scientists made the effort to communicate with a general audience. Science journalists are great folks, but they have a nearly impossible job, right? They are trying to dig in and communicate. Uh, uh, things where, you know, they don't have the same background knowledge that the scientist would have. And, uh, oftentimes they're on a short deadline. They don't have as much time to dig in. And then they don't, a lot of times they have to be just very journalistic and say, all right, well, here's one opinion and one other opinion, but they're not going to form their own opinion, right? I'm not a journalist, right? I can be totally opinionated, right? My books aren't like, well, on one hand this, on the other hand this, to be fair, let's consider both sides. No, my books are like, look, I've read this and here's what I think. You know, some other people might say this, but I'll tell you, this is what I think right here. Yeah. And so it's it's a different role to be a scientist who communicates as opposed to a journalist. And I think that role is, is an important one. And I'm, I'm hoping that more working scientists will take it up. 
Awesome. Well, I hope they listen to this podcast and I hope that's a rally call <laughs> to other people. But thank you. Thank you for talking to us today, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Awesome. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by audible.com, which is the leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, fiction, nonfiction, whatever you want. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is providing a free audiobook of your choice to try out their service. If you enjoyed today's guest, I suggest you check out David Linden's newest book, Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. You'll learn about how our sense of touch affects who we are and how we experience the world, from our consumer choices to sexual experiences. Now, who doesn't want to know about that? To pick up this book for free, or another one of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. See you next time.